Imagine, it's Seattle, early 1910, and you've had the misfortune to drop dead on the lonely streets of the downtown waterfront with no identity, no money, or family nearby to claim your body. After a few days, King County Coroner Mr. Hoy would call the horse-drawn hearse to bring you to the potter's field, a lonely, windy point of land next to the county hospital in Poor Farm along the Duwamish River. You're laid to rest in a plain pine box in a long trench, likely squeezed between yesterday's and tomorrow's dead. No funeral, no eulogy, no obituary. You, along with 3,260 of your fellow deceased going back to 1879, could have rested forever on this thin point of land inside a meander of the Duwamish River. However, the Army Corps of Engineers and other civic boosters had other ideas. Cue the music. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. Welcome to Invisible History with Carrie and Elka. We're going to be exploring the Pacific Northwest lost stories with you. Welcome to Invisible History, exploring Seattle's lost stories with Carrie and Elka. So Carrie, you want to tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you exactly got involved with trying to find Seattle's lost stories? Yes. So I'm Carrie Simpson. I'm a creative mixed media artist and an environmental consultant here in Seattle. And I focus on connecting people with diverse environments in our area. I'm also recently become the producer of the Friends of Georgetown History's annual Georgetown Haunted History Tour, which has entertained sold out crowds for the past 20 years. And I also have an artist space at Equinox Studios in Georgetown and just have a long history of working along the Duwamish River and fascinated with the history there. As the producer of the Haunted Tour for the past three years, I'd heard many a tale over the years of bodies being dumped in the river from an old cemetery and the stories of ashes being scattered in the fields around the river just had haunted the tour for years, but no one that I could talk to from the neighborhood knew where this cemetery was located. And to add confusion, there is the Comet Lodge Cemetery, which is up on the hill, basically on Beacon Hill, but at the time... It was Upper Georgetown, basically, before I-5 was built. So people thought, oh, well, maybe there was a cemetery and they moved the bodies up there. Um, so there was just a lot of questions about all of that. And then... That's the one people usually know, right? Comet the Comet Lodge. Lodge. If they know yeah. South Seattle history. Which is worthy of its own story. And maybe we could do another episode about the Comet Lodge. Future episode. <laughs> um but during the pandemic, so imagine, you know, it's 2020 and going into early 2021, I'm working at an office down on Harbor Island, actually, and my coworker had a huge map up on his cubicle wall from 1905 of an Army Corps, basically a planning map for the dredging of the Duwamish, 
River. And I looked closely at it one day and it said County Graveyard, like written right on the edge of the river in this area of Georgetown that I had never even thought could possibly have a cemetery. So that seeing that and realizing, okay, the Army Corps wouldn't have noted a cemetery if it wasn't there. And so then just starting to look and like research stories, there was a little bit I found on Find a Grave, but it wasn't until I met Elka that we really like dove into this and started really in earnest going to, you know, talk to the archives and like finding more maps that actually showed the location of this potter's field. So yeah, in 2022, I entered the picture, or rather my world collides with Carrie's, <laughs> right, through a project and a picture. I was midway through my master's degree in visual anthropology because I felt commercial filmmaking had too many job prospects, which is understanding visual anthropology, for those of you who don't know. I do get a lot of questions about it. It's understanding human culture through creating media, basically. So I was working on a photo essay piece, Dreams on the Duwamish. So those of you who don't know the Seattle area, the Duwamish River is in South Seattle, and it's a very important natural resource and location from the time that our indigenous tribes have been here. So I was looking at the history of the Duwamish River and issues with pollution and access to water. And Carrie's name suddenly comes up. She's <laughs> recommended to me because she does this trash pickup and paddle on the river. Amazing, by the way. And so she agrees to pose with a, a paddle board for my picture. <laughs> and I find out how she's been researching a lost cemetery. Now, my dad is a historian on the East Coast, so I grew up with everything being about history and going to all the sites. So I'm like a mystery surrounding an old cemetery. <laughs> Where do I sign up, right? And you also had been a former Seattle Underground tour guide, right? Because we had started talking about the Haunted History Tour, which I was probably at that point, April, starting to think about the tour for that year. And I'd invited you to get involved. So, and obviously your history working with the underground tour. Yes, yes. That was probably one of my favorite jobs ever. And for those of you who haven't been lucky enough, you know, to visit the Emerald City yet, we basically would lead large groups through one of the early city development areas in Seattle. It's called Pioneer Square. And you go through these underground tunnels that they created after they had a big fire in 1889. They wanted to raise the level of the street, but they also wanted to still have business ex existing while they did that. And basically they ended up with these underground spaces that had businesses in them. It's basically telling stories and jokes to people from all over the world, which is in my mind, a perfect <laughs> job. <laughs> and my big claim to fame is giving a tour to the late chef, Anthony Bourdain for his TV show, The Layover. I remember I actually had gone back to school to become a filmmaker at the time. And they called me back in. Can you do this special tour? And I was like, well, and they said it's for Anthony Bourdain. I was like, how soon do you need me? <laughs> and it was also our red light district version of the tour. So I basically got to talk dirty to Anthony Bourdain, which is life oh, goal accomplished soon. check. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with a background like that, you would definitely be considered knowledgeable in Seattle history. Okay, well, that's part of what kicked this whole thing off is because I thought so at the time, you know, but that brings us back to this story in South Seattle. 
because I started researching the history of the Duwamish and the South Seattle area, and I realized there's this whole thread of history that includes that contested land and the different groups that have been coming in over the years that have been marginalized. And of course, that's including the original groups that were here too, that were marginalized, the Coast Salish tribes and the Duwamish in particular. And that isn't being told in the main narrative unless you're specifically connecting with those groups or living in those areas and maybe not even then. And I was kind of blown away by the idea that I could live in Seattle for close to 16 years and have studied aspects of the history, but have these gaps in my knowledge. And that was a huge catalyst for me getting involved. It was one of the main reasons that I've been deeply drawn to this project. And I want to help tell these stories that have been pushed to the margins or made invisible in this dominant narrative. Yeah, for me, I guess that's my story too. So in 2001, the Duwamish River was listed as a Superfund site. And I worked for an alternative newspaper at the time. And we wrote a story about the Duwamish River. And I went out in a kayak to interview BJ Cummings from the Duwamish River Cleanup Coalition, and basically had my own mind blown because I had lived here since 1995. I didn't even know there was a Duwamish River. Suddenly I'm out in this like crazy industrial eco environment with seals and great blue herons and <laughs> pipes discharging yellow liquid into the river. And it was just like, like oh for me, and I was in getting my master's at the same time, 2003. And our one of our faculty members said, go out in the world and just find something to get involved in and just stick with it. And for some reason I did, like the Duwamish really has become a backbone of my work, my professional work, my creative work. And so I feel the same as you, like how can people live in Seattle and not know about the Duwamish and then uncovering these stories that really make it real for people, that it's not just this horrible polluted mm -hmm. site that's causing three-eyed fish. It's actually this dynamic landscape it's a salmon habitat. It's an industrial core. It's indigenous place. It's has this really, to me, this so many layers. And it, just to me, there's like a thousand stories that can be told there. So that is um, so important because, you know, yeah. I think when I first started the project, I was scared about it. Like I'd heard about it being a super fun and I was like literally physically scared to go walk around there or be mm -hmm. near the water. And, and so I feel really good about having made progress on that and yeah. gone like... You and Chase came out and chance, chance, yeah. chance and picked up garbage with me, so. which was amazing. <laughs> Everyone should try that because it's so it's important for like giving back to the community and it changes your perspective, right? Like you were saying about getting out on the water, you can't help but feel like you know you see like the industry mixed with this beautiful landscape, and you can just feel the sort of visceral nature of the mm -hmm. space. So yeah. So then to layer in this intersection of all this history and all these things that are currently happening with the paranormal. So you also have a spooky family connection, right? That's right. So it's <laughs> funny. So for a long time, I, I don't know that I considered myself someone who was into God stuff or spooky themes and mainly because I've always been like really risk averse and cautious. And I was not the person that would go traipsing around the graveyards at night and stuff like that. But in other ways, I've always been incredibly fascinated by stuff that would be considered like monstrous and otherworldly. Like um, I would be looking up vampires in the library in high school and stuff. And, and of course, Anne Rice, dating myself here, but uh, I went to Tulane University in New Orleans mm. back in 1995, partly because I was so obsessed with Anne Rice's books. <laughs> and I just, and it is a magical place. I mean, I hope, you know, with 
the talk about climate change and the aspects there, the history, the contested space, there's a lot to dig into there, which would be, have to be a whole another series probably. But there is a bit of family lore as well, because my maiden name is Kummero, and Kumer means sorrow or grief in German. And my family were undertakers in Chicago around the 1860s. So I think in many ways I was actually destined to do this type of research. <laughs> and in fact, my married name, Hadala, is Finnish, and it means living by the noble grave. And I mean, I'm not an expert in linguistics, so for all I know, everyone's family name comes back to death and graveyards because that's the reality of life, especially in the past there. It was very central to how people approach life in the past because life expectancy oftentimes was a lot shorter, right? So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess I love spooky stories, and I did, did and do love to wander around graveyards and <laughs> the, I had been on, I had gone on the Georgetown haunted history tour as a, as a guest basically for years and then asked to be part of it. So for four years, I was, I basically was one of the skits and worked with different people from the neighborhood. And we made these different stories about the TV tent one year we did the schools kind of a haunted schoolhouse story. Um, and then now, I'm the producer, but I, I love haunted stories. I love going on ghost walks where I, if I travel somewhere, I'm like, I have to go on a ghost tour here. And I just think I'm realizing this is a way to get regular people interested in history is through these kind of creepy stories or these dark tourism, whatever it is. It's like very yes. appealing to people right now. Mm -hmm. And if that gets someone interested in, oh, what was it like here in the 1800s? Or why why were the, um, you know, wh why was the downtown created the way it was? Like, I think that helps people kind of understand context of history and, and why cities look the way they do. And obviously there's a million ghost stories to tell. And I love kind of making people, um, you know, have that visceral feeling of, mm -hmm. of being kind of spooked up a little bit. Yeah, Friends of Georgetown history is kind of, the key thing connecting us in a lot of ways, aside from our shared interest. And that really is something I was so amazed to find out what you guys were doing because that's my dad's specialty as a historian is public history. So engagement with the public. And I think a lot of places have been doing sort of the same old tried and true techniques of, you know, whatever with lectures or whatever, but this idea of using theatrical production, of, of telling stories in these ways that involve multimedia and arts is amazing to me. And I felt like, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, this is exactly <laughs> what I want to do. So, and now it's, my, I just finished my second year and this year I did a whole skit about a seance. One of the things that I'm interested in is this idea of, of looking at people who aren't just kings and queens and the battles. And a lot of people get, you know, they get um, turned off by history because they're like, there's tons of dates I have to memorize. And it's like, I'm hearing about people that have nothing to do with what my life is like. And it's so different. But I think there's been an interesting shift in looking at what the wealthiest and pow most powerful people's lives were like to those in the middle or those who were working on the street or something. Mm -hmm. And there's a really interesting book I read, Annalee Newitz's book, Four Lost Cities, which is brilliant if you haven't read it. And they talk about data archaeology and the democratization of historical research. And it's it's cool because specifically what they're talking about, that sounds like big fancy words, right, for <laughs> academic stuff. <laughs> but what they're looking at is like the ruts in, of the carts made in Pompeii and like the gutters, what they mm -hmm. find in the gutters, you know, and, and to see what people's lives were actually like. So it has this resonance with finding out what 
people in South Seattle who were immigrants, what their lives were like. We want you to know what the average Tuesday was like for an immigrant who ended up buried in this potter's field. And we're drawn to the headlines, but we can also provide a glimpse beyond them, hopefully, right? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so as we go into this, so this is our first episode, and the, over the next four episodes, we'll be telling deeper, going deeper into the story of the potter's field. But to start with, um, we wanted to de- define some of the terms that relate to our research. So what do we mean by a potter's field? Um, it's not a term you hear every day in conversation, Um, You might have heard a pauper's grave, which is similar, Um, but a graveyard and a cemetery are actually two different things, even though you might hear them used interchangeably, but there is a difference. Um, And a cemetery is typically a burial that's not affiliated with a place of worship. So religious and non-religious or non-believers could be buried there, and it can be private or it could be public. And then a graveyard is typically connected to a place of worship, usually a church yard, um, as you might find in Scotland or Ireland. Um, And the plots are reserved for people of that church or religion. So graveyard equals church, usually, or another place of worship. Mm -hmm. Cemetery equals no place of worship. Anybody can be buried there. Yep. And then the potter's field is a 17th to 20th century institution term based on a biblical reference to a place where potters actually dug for clay. So if you imagine going out in a field and you find clay there, so they're digging these big long trenches, after the clay's all been dug out, you're left with these holes basically. And so those were used to bury people who were strangers or people without any other means to be buried somewhere else. And finally, one more term we may refer to is indigent, meaning someone who is poor or in need of services, like social services, basically. Okay, so in order to understand how Potter's Field was created by a river in South Seattle and then erased just a couple decades later, you have to understand what Seattle was like back then. Now, Carrie gave us a great little teaser intro, which I think really sets the scene. (laughs) And for the sake of all of our attention spans, I'm not going to do the whole history, but definitely Check out historylink.org is a really good particular resource. There's definitely way more, and we'll be sharing them as we go along. Uh, That's an easy one to find on the internet if you want to find out much more. And also important to note that we'll be diving more into the indigenous roots in episode two. Right now, we want to know what we would have seen, felt, and experienced walking the streets from, say, 1907 to 1912, Then Carrie's going to share more about the epicenter of our story, a neighborhood known as Georgetown. It's the beginning of the 20th century, and that was known as the Progressive Era. It was indeed a time of progress, I put it in quotes, right, by some standards, movement, change, and growth. So the city literally grew in size, annexing Southeast Seattle, South Park, which is close by to Georgetown there, Columbia, Ballard, West Seattle, Ravenna, and Georgetown, some of which locals will recognize as neighborhoods in the city today. I'm not sure if they were throwing the fish yet, but the iconic Pike Place Market opened on August 17, 1907, so right at like the beginning of the time period we're looking at. From the market website, it says six to 12 farmers brought their produce-filled wagons to Pike Place on opening day, and they sold out by lunchtime. So I guess it was a hit already. There's already a <laughs> crowded, right? You might be surprised to learn that um, so Italian and Japanese immigrants were actually very influential 
in the produce and goods available at the market. They were doing the farming at the time, right? So, and there was a railroad expansion and the 13th federal census in 1910, and it showed Washington's population growing at many times the national average. So uh, a lot of people wanting to come out here. A fact close to my heart, women won the right to vote in 1910. And by 1912, the first women had been elected to statewide office. Woohoo! The Municipal League was founded for governmental and candidate oversight. There we were forming unions, strengthened and used their power to strike from everybody from bill posters, which is probably something you don't think about a lot today, but people putting up, you know, the, the posters on on uh, telephone poles or things, to musicians, to forest and mill workers, which was definitely a big one back then. Racism reared its ugly head. If you look at things like the anti-Hindu riots up and down the coast, where white mill workers fought back with physical violence against what they saw as the East Indian threat to their job security. We'll talk more about that in later episodes. Sometimes progress fighting against racism was made. If you look at the case of Samuel and Susie Stone, a black couple who won the right to live in the exclusive Mount Baker neighborhood and the good old AYP, AYP, pretty young, you know, right? <laughs> or Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition. It was an early world's fair that was held on the grounds of what would eventually become the University of Washington with landscape design by the Olmsted brothers who had a huge hand in shaping what the like parks and green spaces look like in Seattle today. So we had all of this push and pull going on, the tension between promise and progress. For whom? Like who was the progress helping and who was the promise for? Who gets to define it or decide it? I think these are really important questions to ask ourselves. Who gets a seat at the table and who's just along for the ride? January 8th, 1904, Georgetown incorporates as a city, but would soon become annexed into the city of Seattle through a vote in 1910. We could say Georgetown is actually the real birthplace of Seattle because the Collins family and the Maples were there before the treaty, before the people arrived at Alki. The but famous Denny party story. The famous, right, is, exactly. So Success. for those of you who don't know, yeah, 1851, when we had what they considered the city's founding fathers arriving at this windswept point in Alki, which is West Seattle area today. And they wanted to, um, they thought this is perfect. We'll set up camp. This is, there's, there aren't any indigenous people here. And they, you know, then they had to actually pass some time there with the weather. And then they realized why the indigenous people weren't living <laughs> on the pretty beach. It's horrible out there all right? the time. It's either <laughs> windy, raining, there's no shelter. So the, that, group moved into what we now know as Pioneer Square, which then was called the Little Crossing Over Place, which is basically Yesler and First Avenue, um, which was a little spit of land that soon became filled in to become solid ground for the birthplace of what we now know as downtown Seattle. But Georgetown, which was named for Julius Horton's son, George, um, the Hortons were a prominent family of early settlers the Collins family and the Maples had arrived in 1851 prior to the Denny party. And so they had set up farms and homesteads there. And so all through the end of the 1800s, Georgetown existed as an independent or unincorporated King County, basically, and then formed as an independent city from 1904 to 1910 when it was annexed by the city of Seattle, 
mostly to ensure that the residents had access to drinking water from the Seattle's Cedar River water, Reservoir, interestingly enough. Which Ballard, doesn't Ballard have a similar, so Ballard's another mm-hmm. um, city, former city turned neighborhood in the north side of Seattle. And they had another situation with like drinking water. It's a famous mm-hmm. story about a horse in a well or something and yeah. to try to convince them to join that they needed Seattle. Yeah, that I mean, and really, despite how much it rains here, Seattle is actually pretty dry. You've got all these hills. There's not a lot of spring water. And obviously, if people were also putting waste into any available water body, all the water around Seattle must have been disgusting and undrinkable. <laughs> and so all these little neighborhoods, cities, parts of Seattle needed this drinking water. And so the Cedar River watershed up in the, out basically outside of, on the edge of east side of King County, became this first water, drinking water reservoir, which we still use today, and the first place where electricity was generated. Oh and gosh. I just heard last night from our friend Clayton Ballard that <laughs> the first madam in Seattle had her house powered with electricity using power from that Cedar River electrical generating. Oh so her gosh. house was lit up like Madame Lou was Madame Lou, yeah. yeah. That's well, you know, they were working on making sure all the important people had what they exactly. needed. Exactly. <laughs> and she was like, I need lights. Everybody needs to see what's going on. The ships at sea need to see what's gonna happen when they pull into the dock here. Right. Another interesting point about Georgetown is that Georgetown incorporated as its own city in 1904, largely as a defense against the prospect that Seattle, which could have was going to become a dry city through local prohibition. Even before the United States went into Prohibition, Seattle and the temperance movement and all of these um, people who were very upset about how Seattle was very much like a Wild West town with drinking in the streets and gunfights. And so they wanted to calm everything down. And so Seattle chose to become a dry city. And so Georgetown, as becoming its own city outside of Seattle was able to keep operating saloons, all these breweries, the largest breweries on the West Coast were located in Georgetown. And um, so, yeah, that's how Georgetown basically became known as this red light district, 24-hour saloons, some of which advertised lodging arrangements, having a special friend meet down there, horse track <laughs> racing. Of course. Uh, it was a wild time, so... It has so, an auspicious start, right? Yes. So, Georgetown, so you get the picture, right? It, it yes. is definitely that type of uh, interesting place. for. Yeah. <laughs> and to learn more, I would just visit History Link and search the history of Georgetown, Seattle. You'll learn a lot more. So, and for us, as women of a certain age with master's degrees, yes. <laughs> we are people who can navigate the basic resources for research. And so that's where we were at that point in starting to learn more about this potter's field was digging into the available resources that we could lay our hands on to learn more about where this potter's field was located. And so initial Google searches basically for the potter's field, the King County graveyard, poor farm cemetery, we didn't provide many leads surprisingly other than findagrave.com, which shout out to them is an amazing resource to learn about any cemetery pretty much in our entire country Um, And so we found this listing for the Duwamish Cemetery, which included the description of the location, which is the Duwamish Cemetery from 1876 to 1912 was located on a knoll overlooking the Duwamish River at the King County Hospital and Poor Farm. So this description helped me recognize the inside of this double lobed shape of what, you know, bends of the river 
of what we know today as Georgetown is where the cemetery was located. And that matched up with that original Army Corps map from 1905. So to me, this solidified it for me. And that's when I just was like, I need to make a map overlay. I want to see where this is in context for today's street grid and essentially used Canva <laughs> to make my own map overlay Perfect. because it just seemed like the easiest thing to do at that point. And didn't they also mention like something we're going to talk more about later is this is one, not the first time, but it was sort of reiterated this oral history idea that it was on, it was an Indian burial ground mm-hmm. prior to prior to being the Duwamish Cemetery, which is, we will unpack later whether that was true or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that land, the, the Duwamish, or the King County Poor Farm and Hospital, we'll talk more about that in the next episode, but that was unincorporated King County. It's basically a poor farm. People went there who couldn't live somewhere else. It became a TB sanatorium. So think of it as basically this, unfortunately, like a dumping ground for people that the rest of Seattle did not want. And so, of course, the cemetery also managed the dead and dying from these institutions as well. So, yeah. And so we started looking into resources in town and and, um, those of you who aren't regularly doing historical research for a living or for fun, which we do a little bit of both. So we, there actually are a lot of resources out there locally. Museum of History and Industry is an excellent place to start. They have an incredible photographic collection. Seattle Municipal Archives, shout out to them. They've been super helpful. And then some more specialized organizations that we started looking at, like the Wing Luke Museum, which looks at the Asian American immigrant experience in this area. Uh, But as we're contacting these places, I mean, super interesting stuff, but we really could only find more general like photos and document references to the Georgetown area. And usually a lot later on around the 1930s, like Seattle Municipal Archives has a really great like 1930s collection of public works projects they were doing down there, but that's past the time period we were looking at. So it was, it was nothing but a memory at that point. Um, Nothing related to this specific cemetery. And yeah, actually Carrie just reminded me that University of Washington, of course, two special collections and Seattle Public Library too was super helpful, especially later on as we dug into um, ancestry and newspaper accounts, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So the big lead, the big like turning point, our epiphany (laughs) that first came uh, out was from Danielle Coyle at King County Archives. Shout out to her. Super helpful. And they found us this 1907 King County Road Services map, which showed prior to the river being dredged and straightened, and it also showed that like planning was already underway for it. And it had references to the cemetery and the crematory, right? Too, or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It actually showed the Potter's Field, those words written on the map with like a line, like a fence around it. Basically, they'd marked off the area where the Potter's Field was. And I just, I couldn't believe it. It was like, <laughs> ding, a, yes. like light bulb <laughs> over the head. And we were like, this is amazing. So first big break in the case, right? Yeah. And it was, but like due to the pandemic, they weren't open to the public at first. And then they were dealing with staffing issues. So like more time passes and it actually took about four months to finally get in touch and and get this um, map package from 1907 to 1912. And um, we actually went there in person to look at their resources with uh, 
and this is with one of our friends from Georgetown history, friends of Georgetown history, the man, the myth, the legend, Andy Bookwalter. So he went with us and it was still very much in the restrictions of the pandemic. So here we are with like our masks and worrying about like what we're touching and who we're around and all that stuff. And they have a like, you know, just a very few people on staff, but it was amazing because we got to go in the actual space and see these documents that really ended up being so key to our research. And um, one of the things aside from that map, the 1907 map was this burial registry uh, the actual exhumation registry from 1912, the very last time that the cemetery was still uh, burying people. And one of the things that really brought this home for us about our whole concept of invisible history becoming visible is the number of people buried there. And not just that, but how they were buried. There were 855 with names and like headboards, 493 with numbers, you know, on like a headboard or something. 1,912 with no mark, headboard, or numbers, nothing. And so these people are essentially completely lost to history. These statistics, there were they were glaring evidence of the mistreatment of people who lived and died in these types of situations in Seattle up through 1912. And this really lit the fire in us to learn about who was buried there. And that will be our exploration in um, episode three. Yeah, so... Just to recap, like in just under 35 years, so from 1876 to 1912, over 3,260 bodies were buried at the Duwamish Cemetery, also known as the King County Poor Farm Cemetery, also known as the Potter's Field. And this is about 100 people per year, so almost one burial every few days. So just imagine that. And living in Georgetown at the time, we don't actually have any photo evidence of what it actually looked like. But in my mind, I imagine this point of land where literally no one went. You couldn't grow anything. There were no trees out there. It was on the edge of the poor farm. So away from where the farm and garden and greenhouses and fruit trees and stuff were. And I think it was just this no-go land. And it probably was very taboo to look over there even for people living in Georgetown. So that's become like our holy grail is finding I like know. this visual uh, Ashel record. Curtis, please, I hope you went and took a picture and it's just sitting in a box somewhere. <gasps> yes. At the Washington <laughs> State Historical Society. Oh my gosh, um, right. So at the end of August 1911, the county right-of-way agent was instructed to find a new location for a potter's field, quote-unquote, and to purchase the same, the old location being on the right-of-way of the Duwamish Canal. That, to me, is very interesting because the Panama Canal was actually being built in the same time period. So the boosters of Seattle were just thinking like, oh, we need our own canal (laughs) to boost our industry and make this useless land become something that people needed and wanted and was going to improve the lives of people living in the area. So, um, so... So we had that information, and and then after that, basically, there was no no records of the county actually purchasing a new location for the Potter's Field, and this just added to the mystery of what happened to all those people at the end of 1912. Right, and not only did we get to look at this like burial registry, this exhumation record, which is just incredible with the the names of some people in there even, and some people just have numbers and it's in handwriting, of course, and mm. just really cool. But there's another important document there, um, a 1913 state auditor's scathing report on 
both the poor farm, King County Hospital, and TB sanatorium conditions, which we'll talk more about in episode three, but also the whole process of exhumation and cremation, like how it was done. And they they were not holding back. They did not mince any words on this one. They, they called the handling of the whole process, it was considered beyond understanding how they could have done it the way they did it and accomplished it. And, and there were lots of horror stories coming out of the hospital that the Seattle Star newspaper was investigating at the time, too. And so we actually had a, I, there's another document, too, although this isn't an original resource. So those are original source materials, which were amazing. But there was a document created by King County Archives, a crematorium timeline. And this ends up being a really key document for our understanding of the specific historical context. And it was put together by Rebecca Pixler, who is now retired. And she's one of those unsung heroes of the archives. This is all that incredible work that goes on behind the scenes of these local archives that many people never see. So check out your local archives, people. You never know what you (laughs) might find. (laughs) Our little add-in, we did want to add that the map package included as-built designs of the county crematory. It was built in 1912 next to the old cemetery on the land that's now under, surprise, surprise, the Georgetown campus of South Seattle College. So just think about that when you're going to class, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is no ordinary industrial crematorium too. You may be thinking, okay, something sparse, right? No, no, no. This is an elaborate Gothic style brick building with rosette windows and an adjoining chapel. And we'll make sure you can see the pictures on our like Instagram and stuff. The county even hired the super well-known Olmstead brothers to create a landscaping plan for the grounds <laughs> at the western edge of the poor farm property. I mean, because really, what is the most important part of this? It's looking right. good, right? <laughs> Never mind that ashes were probably scattered all over the Olmstead landscape. <laughs> oh my gosh, right? Yeah, we're very lucky and super excited about the places we've been able to have some funds from to be able to continue our research. Yeah, Friends of Georgetown History, which is a nonprofit, was able to raise grant money from Fort Culture and the Arts Fund of Washington to fund our research. And um, and then we wrote in the grant that we would write this overview report of our research. And then we presented that reporting on Zoom on a Lunch and Learn in February of 2023 to whoever we could invite to come along. So we sent it out to our fogey list of people and supporters. And interestingly enough, Jim Dever from King 5 Evening came to the Zoom because he's a huge fan of Georgetown um, and actually is also really interested in spooky stories. And so he was on the Zoom and waited around after we were done. And we, we were so like, great. hello. Yeah. And he was very intrigued with the story and ended up doing a little piece about the lost Potter's Field, which mm-hmm. aired in February of 2023 on King 5 Evening. So, and we can share that through yeah. our links too. It's a lot of fun. And through that presentation, we also met and recruited Rose Ridlian and her sister Patty to help us with researching local newspaper articles. Mm-hmm. Um, they're retired and just had time on their hands. And so we would, we gave them lists of names of the people from the Potter's Field burial registry. And they went to town and found us so at much. least a dozen or more. <laughs> I mean, more. And just yeah. some of the stories are just incredible. Either local newspaper articles about their death or their life, you know. And so these were not like anonymous people. These were... Working people, traveling, unfortunate circumstances in most cases. So 
Yeah, and we'll share more of those stories in episode three. So stay tuned for that. Yes, looking forward to it. Yeah. So then the other person we connected with is Eric Anderson, who he's a local archaeologist and had he right now works as a cultural resources manager consultant in in Washington state and does a lot of work on cemeteries and graveyards. And so he had done research and presented at, at two local conferences about the lost potter's field, both in 2011 and then again in 2019. And just through the miracle of Googling, we found him and his presentation information yes. and contacted him through LinkedIn. LinkedIn yeah. And we completely like blew him out of the water because he thought he was probably the only person who knew about the Potter's Field. And I think he mm-hmm. was surprised to find that these two ladies <laughs> from Georgetown have yeah. <laughs> discovered the same thing. And But the thing was amazing for me is that he confirmed that we had found the correct location. And he shared maps and other information from his archaeological desk research. And just, in, just getting his perspective as a trained archaeologist like based on his research, he believes there are likely human remains both under the cemetery site, which is 500 South Myrtle Street, and human remains left around the crematorium, which is under the South Seattle College, Georgetown mm-hmm. campus. So a human body would rapidly decompose in the wet conditions around the Duwamish River in 1912, especially bodies that were not embalmed or put into lined caskets. So likely there wasn't much left of people buried there in 1879 to 1905, and only those buried after 1905 would have really even been recognized as human remains by 1912. So interestingly, there probably were not obviously 3,260 like (laughs) mummies or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like it was probably just a lot of unknown pieces pieces I know is that the right this was a huge turning point I mean the fact that these years like leading up to it and from finding that that little title on the map and having it confirmed where it was like seeing that someone else had been doing that research and you know just meeting Eric at this coffee shop and digging into his research uh it was just it was amazing and it was a huge turning point for our research as well the next one like a huge breakthrough you know we now we had confirmed and knew where the space was. And that's amazing. And so now we can move forward with doing some of that mapping, which is what we're going to talk about in episode two, just how the landscape changed mm-hmm. and evolved over the years. So, yeah. So stay tuned for that. Everybody tune back in with us when we will be making visible the landscape and how it's changed over the years and digging more, digging in, oh, no (laughs) pun intended, about uh, this space and place. Thank you so much. (laughs) Bye-bye. You've been listening to Invisible Histories, Pacific Northwest with Elka Hadala and Carrie Simpson, exploring the lost stories of the Pacific Northwest recorded at Works Progress Cooperative in Seattle, Washington in 2023, Seattle's only cooperatively run co-working space. And you can find out more at worksprogress.coop. Audio edited by me, Elka Hadala, and funding provided from a 2023 For Culture Heritage Project grant. And support from Friends of Georgetown History Productions, If you want to find out what they're all about, visit fogh.org. 
And you can link to our Invisible Histories webpage through the fogey.org site to see pictures, maps, show notes, and all the juicy details. We know where the bodies are buried. Subscribe to our podcast where you get your podcasts and reach out to us at invisiblehistoriespnw at gmail.com. Thank you.